Well, we are in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we finally come to the first, the first human confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ in the whole book. Previous to this, we as readers know that both angels and demons, that is spiritual beings, have said this very thing about Jesus, but here in chapter nine, Peter, speaking for the disciples, is the first human to confess this. And his confession comes after witnessing a, a long period of Jesus preaching and healing the sick and the disease, casting out demons, raising the dead, and with last week feeding thousands of people, well more than 5,000 men, in the wilderness from five loaves and two fish. Again, we're in chapter 9, Gospel of Luke. Let's take it up with verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word about your Son, and we pray that through your Spirit, this word would work deep within our hearts and our minds, our very bodies, so that we might trust you and walk in your ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 18, we find Jesus praying alone, that is, away from the crowds that have been following him for some time. Even as it's clear his disciples, and I presume this is probably the inner circle of the twelve, but maybe more, um, that they were with him as he prayed. And because of our familiarity with the Gospels, we're used to reading about uh, Jesus praying, and, you know, rightly so. Prayer is, is fundamental to communion with God, and as both Solomon and Jesus taught, his father's house is defined as a house of prayer. So here, Jesus models what a truly alive human does. He prays. But it's easy to overlook in this moment that Jesus is also a prophet. And as a prophet, he had the right and the privilege of dialoguing with God. So you see this very same thing at work with Abraham, who was invited by God to dialogue with God over the coming judgment and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or you see it with Moses, who was invited into God's presence to speak and dialogue with him over Israel. And it's not as though they are equals in that case, but it is that God invites humans to speak with him in dialogue with him. God will have the final answer, but still he invites us to seek him. Jesus, of course, gives us the same privilege through the Spirit, that is, we are invited into God's throne room to offer our petitions before him, and he doesn't merely acknowledge our presence. He actually listens, and he responds. This is why, contra Roman Catholicism, there is no need to pray to certain Christians who have died and gone on to be with lords, or as they would call them, saints, or as I think the Bible recognizes, all Christians are saints. 
There's not only no need, it's, it's actually foolish. And it's sinful to do that. When the Creator God, the King of Kings, invites us to meet with Him, why would we instead think it's a better idea to go meet with one of His servants, say His chauffeur, and ask that guy to go in our place? But Luke doesn't merely want us to see that Jesus is a prophet on par with the prophets that have come before him. He is God come in the flesh. It's why in 10 verses time, in Luke 9, 28, at Jesus' transfiguration, the scene where the disciples are granted the gift of seeing the, the coming glorified Christ, surrounding Jesus are two of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah, and they are dialoguing with Jesus just as they did with Yahweh. It's why Jesus teaches us to offer prayer to his Father in his name. So even as Jesus is a prophet in the same faithful model of Moses and Elijah, he's clearly something far more. He is God come in the flesh. Now, if you backtrack just a little bit, Luke tells us in chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, that Herod the Tetrarch, who technically functioned as uh, the king of Israel at this point, despite not being Jewish, but rather as a descendant of the Edomites, that is a descendant of Esau, which tells you how bad it was that the older brother Esau was ruling over his younger brother Jacob at this point, that he was perplexed, Herod was perplexed, and had questions about who Jesus is. In our passage, Jesus puts the same questions, Herod's questions to the disciples to see if the crowds are any different. The disciples respond, well, some say John the Baptist or Elijah or, or one of the prophets of old, that one of those three has arisen. So on the one hand, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, at least up to this point, the crowds judge Jesus by the right standards. John the Baptist and Elijah were all deemed to be true prophets who were sent by God and spoke for God. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal considering arguably most of the prophets throughout uh, Israel's history were false prophets who led the people astray. The prophets whose, whose writings made it into the Bible, into Scripture, were obviously true prophets, but they were the minority. They were the minority of those who were called prophets. But on the other hand, despite everything the crowds had seen, and even as some people had placed their faith and hope in Jesus, the crowds in general had not taken the next step and identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus then puts the question to the disciples directly. And you, after all they've witnessed, after everything they've been a part of, including witnessing Jesus raise a little girl from the dead, and cast a thousand demons into the abyss, are they the good soil? Are they the good soil? Who do they say Jesus is? Now, there is no more important question put to humanity than this one. This is it. This is the question. And Peter, answering for the disciples, says, the Christ of God. Now, Peter's answer in Matthew 16 gives a little bit more depth there, he says, the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is no higher, no better, no more fundamental confession that a human can make than this about Jesus. 
And Luke's gospel has been steadily building to this, this very moment. But in wider perspective, beyond the gospel of Luke, the biblical claim is that this is what all of world history has been building towards. In other words, to claim Jesus is the Christ, as we do, is to claim that all of life centers on him and depends on him. Now, after the creation of the world and humanity's place within that creation, all of Scripture, from Genesis 3 onward, is working towards the fulfillment of the promise made to Eve. Who is the promised offspring who will crush the head of the serpent? That's the question Scripture is seeking to answer. It's seeking to reveal who that person is because all of life depends upon it. That's the story of the world. Not merely the Bible as if the Bible is some self-contained little story. The Bible claims that's the story of the world. The world. All of Israel's long history after that is God's dealing with humanity. Both Israel, of course, and the nations at large to bring about that offspring. And over the course of that history, God has woven a rich tapestry of meaning through real human lives and events that all patterns were pointed forwards to the coming offspring of the woman. So, for example, last week when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, it's not merely Jesus performing an astonishing miracle, though it is clearly that. <clears throat> it is the revelation of who he is and how all of Israel's history has been building to him. So the feeding of the 5,000 harkens back really like a beautiful, well-written symphony or really kind of like sophisticated jazz, if you're a middle-aged music nerd like, like me. It does this to events in Israel's history that anticipated the coming seed of the woman. So you ask the question, okay, who is Jesus? Here's what the feeding of the 5,000 tells us about who the Christ is. The Christ is the better Moses. Moses is the one who led Israel out of slavery, sin, and death in Egypt and miraculously fed them manna and quail in the wilderness. Jesus will do far better. He will do far better. He will feed us with himself. He has given us a far greater salvation that includes the promise of literal resurrection. After all, Israel died in the wilderness. God's people will be raised from the dead. The Christ is the better David. David is the one who had the right to the showbread in the, the holy place of the tabernacle, the bread of the presence that was set before God that only the priest could eat. And like David, who was an anointed one, a Christ, that's what a Christ is. It is an anointed one. Jesus took the bread of heaven and fed his men by it. And as we will come to see, in the Gospel of John beats this like a drum. Jesus doesn't provide heavenly bread. He is the heavenly bread. The Christ is the better Elisha. This is all same passage, feeding in the 5,000. He is the better Elisha. Elisha followed Elijah and was given a double portion of the Spirit. That is, he was anointed by the Spirit, and he was also miraculously provided bread in, in, in such abundance that there was food left over for his men. So whereas Elisha had leftovers for a hundred men, 
Jesus had leftovers for well over 5,000 men, as well as their wives and children, and he did it twice. So these connections are, are not merely a literary device that's interesting. No, the real-life events that happen with Moses and David and Elisha happen through God's sovereignty so that we might recognize his son, the Christ, the offspring of Eve when he arrived. And those prior events help give shape and depth to the meaning of he is the Christ and show just how much greater the Christ truly is. I mean, think about this. How do you describe How do you put into words something so beautifully rich and complex and deep as the Christ? It requires a multitude of images and events to get at him. So, for example, the reason there are four Gospels is not because the apostles disagreed with each other. Sorry, liberal scholars, that is not the case. Or that they couldn't get their story straight. No, it's because they all highlight different aspects of the same story the same God. John in his gospel said that all the books in the world could not contain the glory of the Messiah, even as the gospel accounts are sufficient for knowing him. It's why were you to read the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien doesn't just have one Christ figure. He has many. So the Christ is like humble Frodo. Right? Offering his life unto death for the sake of his people in the world. The Christ is like King Aragorn, the once and future king who courageously led the host of heaven against the forces of hell. The Christ is like Gandalf, who is wise in patience, a prophet speaking the truth, and he is not put off. He does not overlook the little things of this world. Jesus is the Christ in whom Moses, David, and Elisha all find their completion and meaning. And for good reason, then, Moses and Elijah pray to Jesus at his transfiguration. But notice that Jesus gives more nuance and shape to what their confession of him as the Christ means. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So as longtime readers of the Bible know, Jesus is anticipating his coming death and resurrection at the hands of the leaders of Israel. So the elders would have been more like local uh, leaders, uh, chief priests being the Sadducees and leaders of the temple, then the scribes were the educated elites who led the Pharisees. And in describing this, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. That's what he often called himself, which is language that ties directly into the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel. There's a lot going on with the book of Ezekiel. In fact, we'll see that a little bit tonight. But in that book comes the promise of the building of a new and better temple. That's chapters 40 through 48. And the promise that God would both make a new covenant with Israel where he would put his spirit within them, giving them hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. That's chapter 36. And in turn, literally resurrect Israel from the dust in the valley of dry bones. That's chapter 37. So in one sense, that had already somewhat happened for Israel with their return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple and and so forth. So after that period, you really don't read about idolatry anymore like you did 
in previous passages of the Old Testament. Just think about the Gospels. How often is Jesus addressing idolatry among Israel? Not at all, right? So things have changed. And so Ezekiel is somewhat, somewhat realized. And yet it had not yet been fully realized. There was a better temple yet to come. The Spirit was yet to be poured out. They had not literally been raised from the dead. Daniel, who was a contemporary of Ezekiel, used the phrase the Son of Man too to describe the human who would conquer the beast and ascend to the right hand of God and receive worship alongside the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel 7, and you can see that happening in Revelation 4 and 5 as well, which indicates that the Son of Man is actually divine. He's a God-man. And these are clearly conquering-type images when you think about it, and promises. So alongside the Christ is a better Moses and David and Elijah, who were all heroic in their own right. There's the Son of Man who restores Israel to God, resurrecting her from death, conquering the great beast who is received into the throne room of God as God himself. But why must the Son of Man die? Why must this figure die? Now, think back to our discussion from a few weeks back of the man possessed of legion in the Gerasenes and how we rightly understand that passage by way of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And if you will remember, with the Day of Atonement, once the high priest had offered a bull for his own sins because he himself was sinful, The people in turn offered two goats, two unblemished sons of the herd. One was sent as an atoning sacrifice into the tabernacle and placed on the altar, and one was sent into the wilderness to Azazel, a demon, symbolically carrying the sins of the people to where sin belongs, with the demons, with Azazel. And if you will remember, the people of the Gerasenes had literally cast their sin and shame and actual demons onto this one man who functioned as their scapegoat. So on the one hand, those Gentiles recognized something very important. Only a human can atone for another human. But on the other hand, one of the reasons they kept them alive is because they recognized that even so, this man could not really atone for them. I mean, if he died, they would have to get another man to do the job. And it's better for one man to suffer for them indefinitely than to have to have a new man every year or every six months or something along those lines. And so it was in Israel that the Day of Atonement continued on year after year because as Hebrews 8 and 9 makes clear, animals cannot substitute for a human And so Israel's sin, along with the world's sin, was recognized and deferred for another year, and another year, and another year. And so their sin carried on indefinitely with no end. The Day of Atonement was repeated year after year. And if you go all the way back to Genesis 2, Adam learns through God's own teaching of him that there was no animal that was suitable, a suitable partner for Adam. So as good as animals are, though we can learn from them and make use of them and we are to rule over them, they are not partners. They are not partners for humans, and they certainly cannot 
atone for humans. That's why in Genesis 2, God created a partner for Adam from his own body, a woman who is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And Adam says, she shall be called Isha because she came from Ish. Ish and Isha. There is a unity of body and purpose that humans share that the rest of the animal kingdom does not. Woman, Isha, first came from man, Ish. And in turn, ever after, Ish comes from Isha. Every single man you know was born from woman. So there's both a God-given ordering to humanity, even as there is a God-given mutual dependence between the two sexes. In Genesis 3, the woman was deceived by an animal who was not her partner and who she actually had authority over. But in turn, Adam did not merely fail to guard his wife and keep the sanctuary as God had commanded him to do. As Michael Morales, a Reformed PhD, Old Testament scholar, argues, Adam's failing was that he did not offer himself as an atonement, as an atonement for his wife's sin. Only a human can atone for another human. And Adam, who was set apart as the priest of the sanctuary, that's what it is to keep and guard Eden, and it's the exact same language that was used for the the Levites in the tabernacle. Adam was uniquely positioned to offer his life for his brides. But he does not. And so while animals were sacrificed in order to cover Adam and Eve's sin, they are insufficient to atone for them and to clothe them in glory. Instead, they are clothed in death. And we see this same idea repeated in Genesis 22 when Abraham ascends the mountain, which was a symbolic Eden, and offers his son Isaac at God's command as an offering. So like what Adam should have done, and by the way, Adam was also... God's son. Abraham ascends to the holy mountain, that is Mount Moriah, the very place where the temple would eventually be built in Jerusalem by Solomon, another important son, to offer his miraculous God-given son Isaac as a sacrifice, but God provides a ram, even as the ram's efficacy, its suitability, was predicated on a human sacrifice to come. So the issue was not so much that Isaac as a sinful human could have actually atoned for the sins of the people. He could not, any more than the man in the garrisons could. But rather that the movement of the son given to atone is what is needed. That is the seed of the woman redeeming the world. After Israel and the golden calf at Sinai, that's Exodus 32, Moses, another son, miraculously spared from genocide, ascends the mountain of God. And again, Sinai, like Moriah, was another symbolic Eden, to offer himself as an atonement for the sin of the people. Going so far as to say, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written very reminiscent of what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Please forgive them. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Nevertheless, blot me out instead. But like Isaac, Moses, he cannot atone for the sins of his people. A better son is required. So going back to the Day of Atonement where the high priest needed a bull to atone for his sin, Jesus, the greater high priest, as the book of Hebrews describes him, has no need for a bull because he is the unblemished son of the herd who is perfectly clean. And like that first goat, he would be offered like Isaac as an atoning sacrifice for the people on Mount Moriah. And of course, Jesus would also be crucified outside the city on Golgotha, which is literally the place of Goliath's skull, like the goat carrying the sins of the people out into the wilderness to the place of demons. So when Deuteronomy 18.15 makes this promise, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. That promise, going all the way back to Deuteronomy, finds its fulfillment in... Jesus. You know, so for good reason, at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, God the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. See, Jesus is the greater Moses who feeds the people heavenly bread in himself, who is the greater Son who is able to ascend the holy mountain and atone for the sins of his people. He is the new and the greater Adam who willingly lays down his life for his bride, a bride that came from his own body. As the book of Hebrews makes clear, what's on offer in the sacrificial system with animals and grain offerings, it dramatized. It dramatized what was to come. The sacrificial system's efficacy, the reason it was useful. The reason it was patterned and structured in the way that it was was entirely dependent on the coming offspring of the woman, a son who would crush the head of the serpent and in turn atone for his people as he died. Well, verse 21 says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And the obvious question is, why? Why? Now, of course, we know that they eventually did tell people about it because, well, here we sit. But in this moment, he tells them not to tell anyone about it. And if we read Luke's account in conversation with Matthew's account of this event, it's clear that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying when he told them he was going to suffer and die. And Peter, if you know that passage, actually rebuked Jesus for saying it. Perhaps that's why Luke has Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ, but not the Son. Not the Son of the living God. Peter did not understand, let alone accept, that the Son, the Christ, must atone for the sins of his people. And he must die to do it. So even as they wanted the kingly, heroic Christ, and you know what, you see that on offer a lot right now among Christians in this country. We want a strong, masculine Christ. They rejected the idea that the Son of God must die at the hands of his enemies, no less. And we tend to stumble over his death, too. And we either don't think that he, he needed to die for us, right? It's why we feel so confident in our superiority over others. 
and why it's so easy to withhold forgiveness or hold on to grudges as if we have no sin ourselves, as if, as Jesus says in, in Matthew, that we are able to, to spot the specks in others' eyes while we have logs in our own. Or we don't think his atonement actually extends to us, as if his death would actually redeem me. But you don't know what I've done. If you did, you don't know what I've been through, things I've seen, things I've said. If you did, I don't think you'd say that. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ is such that he died for people who did not think they needed it, like Peter or Paul. And in his kindness, he shows us our own sin. But he also patiently walks with those who do not think they are forgivable or that their sin and shame can be removed or no longer define them. Like Peter, after he denied Jesus three times and how Jesus restored Peter to himself. The Christ, the anointed King of kings and Lord of lords, he is the unblemished son of the herd, and he is given for you, all of you. Let me pray for us. God, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. That is a beautiful sentence that encounters or encompasses so much. The depth of your love never ends. The depth of your mercy never ends. May we grow in your Son and learn to walk in his ways. We pray this in the power of the Spirit that he has poured among us. Amen.